Good morning. Hey, my name's Kevin Maurice. I'm the youth pastor here at Grace. A number of years ago, I had the opportunity to live uh, in a country called Thailand, which is a constitutional monarchy, meaning that the country has a king. And the king's face is everywhere. It's on money, it's on bridges and highways and billboards and every business, every restaurant you go to, the picture of the king is present. And so his presence is established throughout the kingdom. One night, some friends and I, we decided to go see a movie in a theater for the first time and I grabbed my popcorn and my soda and I, I sat down for what I thought were gonna be the previews. The lights go down and then there on the screen was the face of the king. And the Thai national anthem began to play and everyone rose to their feet. My friends and I were uninitiated and so we didn't know what to do with this and, and we hesitated for a split second. And an usher sprinted over to us and said, you must stand. And so we did. Short video ended, the movie itself started, we didn't think anything else of it. Later on, we learned that this is something called the Royal Cinematic Observance. And you could actually be kicked out of the movie theater. You could be banned from attending movies. And in some cases, you could be arrested for not standing to observe this minute and a half honoring of the king. And here we thought the Alamo Drafthouse was strict. <laughs> no. If you live in a kingdom, life looks different. Today, as we study God's word together, that's what we're going to see. So would you please join me in opening your Bibles to Matthew chapter 17, verse 1. Matthew 17, 1. And would you also please join me in standing together as I read this passage for us. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And there he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun. And his clothes became as white as the light. And just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it's good for us to be here. If you wish, I'll put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud covered them and a voice from the cloud said, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground, terrified. But Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said. Don't be afraid. And when they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. Please be seated. As we explore this passage together this morning, we're going to see three things. And two of them are about Jesus, and then the third is about us. First, we're going to see Jesus' identity, his true identity. Then we'll discover the role that he fulfills. And then finally, in light of those two truths, we'll ask and consider how should we respond? Jesus' identity, the role that he fulfills, how will you respond? In Matthew 17, Jesus takes three of his disciples. This is his 
inner circle, they're his closest friends, and he takes them up this mountain for the purpose of seeing something, uh, to experience this moment. He wants to show them who he truly is, and at some point on this high mountain, Jesus' appearance changes. Now, this is important. Jesus' appearance, the way that he looks to these disciples, changes. Jesus himself does not change. The Bible says he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun. His clothes became as white as the light. The word transfigured here is unique. It's only used four times in the entire New Testament. It's this Greek word metamorpho. Metamorpho, which resembles a word that you may recognize in English, metamorphosis. And the language here tells us that there's a change, a a transformation, a metamorphosis taking place. The way that Jesus looks changes, but again, his nature does not. In the animal kingdom, caterpillars are the most well-known creatures that undergo a metamorphosis. And when a caterpillar creates and then crawls into its cocoon, all of the necessary genetic material for the eventual butterfly it's already contained within that caterpillar. It's inherent within its DNA. And so in a sense, it's not really like a caterpillar becomes a butterfly. It's more like a a butterfly becomes what it really is, a, a butterfly. It becomes itself. And that's what's happening here. It's why the gospel writers in Mark and in Matthew use this term metamorpho. Jesus' appearance changes, and he transforms to better display who he is, who he really is. And that's our first truth this morning. Jesus is God. Jesus is God in flesh. He's 100% God and 100% human. Not 50% God, 50% human. He, He wasn't God pretending to be a man, nor was he a man who was granted divinity or attained godliness. He was fully God and fully man. And the theological term for this kind of paradoxical mind-bending doctrine is hypostatic union. That'll be on the quiz later. Meaning that in the person of Jesus, these two hypostatic these two extremes of divinity and humanity, they're held in stasis, in perfect union, in one person, in the person of Jesus. Now, this moment on a mountaintop, it ties directly back to the Old Testament. In the book of Exodus, God leads his people out of slavery in Egypt, and he leads them out into the wilderness, and he's with them wherever they go. And in the daytime, he's there. His presence is with his people in the form of a cloud, and, and they follow it wherever it goes. At nighttime, it's, it's dark, so the cloud becomes a cloud of fire, and the people can see it, and they follow it, and they follow it to this mountain. And the glory cloud descends on this mountain, and the mountain shakes and it trembles under the weight of God's glory. And Moses, the leader of God's people, He goes up this mountain to be with God. He receives the Ten Commandments, the law. He learns how to build and and operate the tabernacle, a place of worship. And most importantly, Moses is in the presence of God. 
After some time of doing this, Moses, I think he, he works up the courage and he asks God for something. He has one request of God and he says, let me see your face. I want to see your face. I've trusted you. I've followed you for a long time. I saw a bush that was on fire and it, it didn't burn up. I saw your, your power on display in Egypt through the 10 plagues. I've seen this cloud that leads us by day and, and fire by night. I saw the wind and, and the water part at the Red Sea. And now here on this mountain, I've seen fire and rain and, and thunder and lightning. I've seen all of these things, but I've never seen your face. And so please, let me just see you. And God says no. He says you can't. Because God is holy, his presence is so overwhelming, God tells Moses, no, because it would kill you. Exodus 33, God said, you cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. But then the Lord said, there's a place near me where you can stand on a rock. And when my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft in the rock and I'll cover you with my hand until I have passed by. And then I will remove my hand and you will see my back, but my face must not be seen. And so God passes by Moses and he gives him a glimpse. Just a glimpse. When Moses returns from this experience, the people are afraid of him. They don't want to look at him because his face is glowing. The Bible says it is radiating light. And what happened to Moses on that mountain is what happens to the moon every night. It's how we're able to see the moon. Because in and of itself, the moon is just a rock floating out in space. The, the reason that we're able to see it is because it reflects, it ricochets, it radiates light from the sun. The sun gives the moon its light. The moon reflects it to us on earth. God passes by Moses, exposing him to his light and Moses reflects it toward the people. And now, again, look at what happens on a different mountaintop, this time with Jesus. The Bible says he's transfigured and his face shone like the sun. So Jesus is on this mountain with the disciples and his face begins to shine, but it's not like Moses because Jesus isn't reflecting light, he's producing it. He's the source of light. He's no moon, he's the sun. He's not only a man, he's God. A few minutes later, that, that glory cloud, the same glory cloud shows up in God's presence and his voice. The Bible says a bright cloud covered them and a voice from the cloud said, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground, terrified. Jesus is bursting with light, and then this bright cloud envelops them, and a voice from the cloud speaks to them. And all three of the disciples, they fall down, eyes closed tight, and they're terrified. And, and that's the correct response. They're doing the right thing in this moment. I'll show you why. Uh, do you remember... At the end of one of the most theologically accurate movies of all time, Raiders of the Lost Ark. 
where uh, the Nazis have captured our hero, Indiana Jones, and they've got him and his girlfriend tied up, and, and they've acquired the Ark of the Covenant, which is this sacred relic where the holiness of God would dwell with his people. And what the Nazis do with it, they decide, let's open it up. Let's open the ark and see what's inside and, and master its secrets and, and hold the power of the divine in our hands. And so they begin to open it. And Indiana Jones, he sees what they're doing and he says, shut your eyes. Don't look no matter what. And the ark is unsealed and the Nazis are trifling with the holy and the glory and the presence of God arrives and everyone is evaporated. But not Indiana Jones. He kept his eyes shut. That's all he did. The presence of God is not to be taken lightly. Moses wasn't even allowed to see God's face. This is Moses. The people of God, they couldn't touch certain items. They couldn't cross certain physical boundaries or they would be dissolved by his holiness. So the disciples are, are in the right here. They fall face down, eyes closed, terrified, and it's reasonable for them to think that this is it. This is the moment. This is when we die. But Jesus came up and he touched them and he said, get up. Don't be afraid. And when they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. Look at this incredible parallel and what it says about the person of Jesus Christ. Moses begged, God, let me see your face. And God said, no. Peter, James, and John, they look up and all they see is Jesus' face. They're staring at the face of God. That's incredible. Jesus isn't just a man. Jesus is God. That's his identity. Now, we skipped over a pair of perplexing verses that I'd like to return to now as we see the role that Jesus, God in flesh, fulfills. This is Matthew 17, verse 3. There appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. And Peter, he's confused, said to Jesus, Lord, it's good for us to be here. If you wish, I'll put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Now, in the Jewish world, culture, religious, social system that Jesus was situated within, there were three primary roles or offices that people looked to as the representatives of God. First, you had the priest, right? This is the person who would mediate between God and the people through prayer, through uh, worship, through offering sacrifices. The priest represents the law and worship. So this person spoke to God on behalf of the people. And the next, you had the prophet. And the prophet spoke to the people on behalf of God convicting people of sin, showing them the way to repentance. Prophets were tasked with proclaiming God's word. And then finally, you had the king, the ruler, the maintainer, the protector of God's people and his kingdom. This is God's man on the throne. And in Jewish history, there were three 
individuals who are seen as the archetypes or as the most esteemed individuals to hold these roles. And so for the priest, there was Moses. That was Moses. He spent time with God. He interceded for the people over and over. He brought down the Ten Commandments. He represents the law and worship. He's the priest. Elijah was seen as the great prophet. He was God's messenger. He called out sin. He fought against false prophets and, and, and false gods. He's taken up to heaven in, in a chariot. Elijah is this great prophet. And then the king. Now, if you know uh, the Old Testament fairly well, there's someone that you would expect to show up in this moment. Okay, Moses is the priest, Elijah is the prophet. Then surely King David would arrive as the king. God calls him a man after his own heart. God promises him a kingdom and a throne that will endure forever. It's got to be David. But that's not who shows up. In fact, no one else shows up. The king is already there. It's Jesus. He's the one true king. And now, to be clear, Jesus is actually the supreme expression of all, all three. He's the truest prophet. He's the greatest priest. What's being communicated here is that he is the ruler over all things. He's not just a king or the next king or a new king. He is God, and he is the king. And he's on the precipice of ushering in his kingdom. After Jesus is metamorphosized, he comes down from the mountain and the trajectory of his life and his mission, it puts him on a path toward Jerusalem, the royal city, God's city. And on the journey toward Jerusalem, Jesus demonstrates his power as king in, in some significant and powerful ways. He exerts his authority over death. He brings Lazarus back to life. On the outskirts of Jerusalem, these, these two blind men call out to him, son of David. It's this intentional, deliberate, royal title, and he heals them. And so all this time, the expectations are growing for the kind of king that Jesus is going to be, the kind of king who's about to ascend to the throne. And in Matthew 21, Jesus arrives in Jerusalem. In the church calendar, we celebrate that today, Palm Sunday. So Jesus gets to the city, and he has this triumphal entry. People are, are cutting down palm branches and putting their, their clothes on the road spread out before him. They're shouting, Hosanna, which means save us. And they're celebrating the arrival of royalty. And the king shows up. Only he's not who they imagined. Jesus arrives, but he's riding on a donkey. And kings don't do that. Kings don't ride donkeys. Because how are you going to overthrow the mighty Roman Empire or reinstitute the kingdom of David? How are you going to take a throne from the back of a farm animal? You know who rides donkeys? Sancho Panza rides a donkey. Servants ride donkeys. And so does Jesus. And in doing so, he's sending a message about his kingdom. He's riding a donkey because first, it's the fulfillment of prophecy. And then second, because of 
what it says about who he is and the kind of king that he is. Matthew 21.5 says about Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem that it's fulfilling a passage from the prophet Zechariah, which says, Say to daughter Zion, See, your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey. See your king. Look, there he is. He comes to you. He leaves the throne and comes to you. This is your king, and he comes to you gently, humbly. Jesus clearly revealed himself on on the mountaintop to the disciples, and now he's clearly revealing himself to the world. He is God. Jesus is the king. And look at the kind of king that he is. He's gentle. He's humble. And so he allows us to respond. Jesus is not going to overtake our intellect or our emotions or our will, not by force. He's not going to trample over us to establish his reign. He comes to us on the back of a donkey gently and says, here I am. Here I am. Now, what will you choose? And when it comes to the person of Jesus and when it comes to his kingship in our lives, there are really only two options to choose from. We can crown him as the king that he is. We can enthrone him over every part of our lives or we can kill him. We can revolt against his reign and say, I'll just serve another king or I'll be my own king. There's not a middle way, at least not one that is intellectually and spiritually honest. Because of Jesus' assertions, because of his teaching, because of his claims to be God, we can't just ignore him or write him off and we can't just acknowledge him and like him. We can crown him or we can kill him. We can bow down or we can bow out. And the astounding truth about Jesus is that he allows us to choose. I mean, ask yourself, would you you kill Jesus? Would would I run away from him uh, in that garden? Would, Would you deny him around that fire in a courtyard? Would you or I really join the crowd and and add our voices to free Barabbas and and crucify Jesus? Would would I actually hammer nails into his hands and into his feet? Most of us would never be brazen enough to say that we would do that, that we would kill Jesus. But if we examine our hearts and our thoughts and our motives and our actions— if we look at our lives and it's apparent that Jesus is not wearing the crown, if he's not our king, then that's the alternative. And if you kill Jesus, someone or something else ends up as your king. And while Jesus is, is gentle and humble, that is not how any other king operates. Every other imposter king will end up tyrannizing and and taking from you, and, and you'll end up a slave to whatever you enthrone. 
Because any other king cannot stand under the weight of the glory that you're ascribing to it. So, for example, perhaps you'll crown another person as, as king over your life. If you're single and you do this, what often happens is you end up making regrettable, terrible dating decisions. And you find yourself conceding or giving up important things and allowing this ruler to take and take because you're scared of losing who you've enthroned. If you're married, it's appealing to crown your spouse, which is such a dangerous thing to do because your spouse cannot possibly live up to or bear that responsibility. They can't. And so you'll resent them for not ruling well, something that they're not meant to do, or you'll bow down and worship them, something that you're not meant to do. And you'll exist in this idolatrous marriage where you'll be tempted to leave in search of another marital kingdom. Parents, it is so tempting to crown our kids. And we love our children. We, we call them little princes and little princesses. And, but that little girl or boy is not meant to be a king or a queen. It's one of the most destructive, just damaging things that we can do to a child is to put a little crown on their head and then bow down to them. If your child is king, you'll orbit around them in such an unhealthy way. And, and listen, as much as they hold a place in your heart, they cannot, and I, I mean that, they cannot spiritually, emotionally, physically, they cannot withstand the weight of being the king of your heart. They can't do it. What's most likely, though, if, if we forsake crowning Jesus, if we choose to kill him, is that we pick up that crown and then we just place it on our own skull. And, and we reign over our little kingdom until we die. And we're the son of our own insignificant solar system until that light burns out. But until then, it's all about me. Long live the king. There's a memorable scene in the book, The Great Divorce by C.S. Lewis, which is this fictional uh, account, description of heaven and hell. And Lewis describes hell as this gray, dreary, drab city. And it's full of miles upon miles of abandoned buildings because who would have thought in hell people don't get along with each other? Because they all want to rule their own little corner of it, their own small piece of it, their own kingdom because they want to keep wearing their crown and, and they keep moving further and further and further away from other people who might infringe on their dominion. And in the scene, these two characters, they go on this journey to the outskirts of hell and they come across this decaying palace. And they look in the windows and they see Napoleon Bonaparte inside. And they watch him as he spends all day, every day, alone. And he's just pacing back and forth in this cavernous mansion. He's just mumbling to himself and he's blaming everyone in his life for his failures. It's this picture of isolation and brokenness and ego and misery. And it's a depiction 
of taking that crown for yourself. The crown meant for Christ. In another book, Lewis puts it this way, look for yourself and you will find in the long run only hatred and loneliness and despair and rage and ruin and decay. But look for Christ and you will find him, his kingdom, and with him everything else thrown in. Jesus the Christ is the only true king because he is God. And that is such a powerful identity-shaping truth. And if you believe this, that Christ is king, it will alter and affect everything about you. And Jesus lets you choose. Crown him or kill him. In Judaism, almost every traditional daily prayer begins with the same phrase, the same 10 words. Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe. That's Jesus, Lord our God, King of the universe. And if you believe those words about him, if you crown Jesus as king, it means that he's king over the entire universe, and that includes every area, every detail of your life. Listen, I'll I'll be extremely honest with you. I'm generally okay with that, but that's hard for me in two particular realms. It's like, great, king of the universe, except for these two areas, I'd rather not. My finances and forgiveness. Because if I'm, if I'm the king of my life, I don't really want to give my money away. Just full disclosure. I, I don't want to tithe 10% to my church. I'd rather keep it. Because if I'm the king, man, there are plenty of kind of improvements around the kingdom that I'd like to make. But here's the thing. I'm not the king. Jesus is. And in his kingdom, it's his money. It's not mine. So I obey. If I'm the king of my life, I don't want to forgive other people when they insult me or offend me. I don't want to pray for my enemies or or for people I don't like. I'd rather vindicate myself. But I'm not the king. Jesus is, and in his kingdom, judgment is his, not mine, and he tells me to forgive, and so I obey. You see, in Jesus' kingdom, everything about you, everything about you, your job, your money, your 401k, your relationships, your marriage, your kids, your family, the way that you talk, the way that you spend your time online, what you do with this life, it's not yours, it's his. Because that's what a king has the right to claim. And and so if, if we come to Jesus asking for help, and for inspiration, and for friendship, and for counsel, and for love, that's wonderful. He can be, and he can offer all of those things, and he can be and offer so much more. But first and foremost, he has to be the king. He won't be anything unless he's king. He says, I want 
all of you. I want all of you. I don't want any part of just some of you. If you crown Jesus as king, he inevitably becomes your absolute goal and priority and life. And the things in your life, they, they stop orbiting you and they begin to orbit around him. So I want to invite you this week to join me in, in doing two things. Two ways that we can crown Jesus as king in our thoughts, in our actions, and in our lives. And the first is this week, ask God to reveal the areas where Jesus is not your king. Ask God to show you where in your life are you holding on to that crown or, or, or where are you trying to wear it? Or maybe even where have you given that crown to someone or something else? Today, ask God, where have I not made you the king in my life? And maybe for some of you, you're, you're like me, and it's, it's finances, or it's forgiving. Or maybe you've crowned family in a way that, that you shouldn't. Or, or maybe the king in your life is, is your political allegiance, or your job, or your retirement plan, whatever it may be. Ask on that area where you are not crowning him. And then, would you join me this week in saying these words as the opening to your prayers? Pray, blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe. Just try it. Experiment. Seven days from today until Easter. Just add those ten words to the start of your prayers. What it, it might do in your prayer life. And in my life, instead of talking about myself first and, hey, God, here, here's the list of things that I need, uh, what if I began my prayers by focusing on the king? So when, when you wake up in the morning, blessed are you, Lord our God, king of the universe. And then you pray about your day. Or if you pray uh, before your meals, blessed are you, Lord our God, king of the universe of the universe and, and you pray and you thank him for the blessing of what you have right in front of you. And that night, right before you go to sleep, blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe. Before you close your eyes, you just remind yourself that even when you're not awake, he's on the throne, he's in control. And begin to pray this week about that area that God might reveal to you. Pray about abandoning that false kingdom and following the true king. And pray out loud. Hear yourself crowning Jesus throughout your day. If you live in a kingdom, life looks different. So let's live like people who know who Jesus is. He's God and he is the king. Would you please join me in prayer? Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe. Father, we come before you humbled by who you are and, and thankful that you love us. God, that you, the King of the universe, stepped down into creation because you love us to redeem us and bring us back to yourself. God, thank you.
Father, we pray this week that you would be with us and, and reveal to us the areas in our lives that, that we're holding back, that we haven't are opened our hands and, and turned over to you. God, I, I pray that we could do that. We could take the first steps or, or even that final step in trusting you in that part of our lives. God, we thank you for who you are and what you've done for us through your son. God, we pray that you would be our king and that we would follow you. We pray these things in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.